I feel the need, the need for speed. Go, go, go. Go rally, no time to tally, but that's four weeks of gains. Are we going back to Cali? I don't think so yet, but we've left the valley of the bears and the scares that made us all aware. Sentiment shifts, portfolios drift, gains become losses. That happens so quick, then losses become gains, portfolios rearranged, resistance becomes support. Could it be just a squeeze of the shorts, or has a new bull market been born? Ring the bells, grab the horns, better yet, take a beat time for reflection. No doubt, this is an inflection, a sentiment shift, a cyclical rift, a change in dynamic. No time to panic. We play it cool. We know the rules. Elementals, fundamentals, trust the process. We're going back to school on the Investopedia Express. Make that four weeks in a row of gains for the U.S. stock market as the rally has become undeniable. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both climbed more than 3% last week and the Dow up 2.9%. The S&P 500 has now climbed 15% from its lows in mid-June, while the Nasdaq has clawed back 20% since then. That could technically be described as a new bull market for the index. A 20% retracement from a recent low kind of fits the bill or the bull, but there are a lot of opinions about that. But we can't deny the strength of the rally, especially when we dig into the charts. The average stock in the Nasdaq Composite Index is up 34% from its lows. Remember, just a few months ago, we were talking about the average Nasdaq stock being down 50% from its highs. The pendulum has swung back in a big way. Across the market, the breath thrust has been pretty impressive. And no, that's not a swimming stroke. The breath thrust indicator is a technical indicator used to ascertain market momentum. It is computed by calculating the number of advancing issues on an exchange, such as the New York Stock Exchange, divided by the total number of issues, advancing plus declining on it and generating a 10-day moving average of this percentage. The breath thrust indicator was developed by Martin Zweig, a legendary investor, advisor, and writer. That's why some people call it the Zweig breath indicator. According to Zwieg, there's only been 14 breath thrusts since 1945, and we're in the middle of a brand new one. 90% of the components in the S&P 500 are now above their 50-day moving average. That's the highest level since November of 2021. The average gain following breath thrusts, according to Zwieg, is 24.6% in an average time frame of 11 months, and the majority of bull markets, those begin with breath thrusts. They're important. Better economic news may have something to do with improving sentiment. Consumer confidence crept up again, according to the University of Michigan's latest sentiment survey, and both consumer and producer inflation were down from their highs last month. Those may be the signs the Fed is looking for to believe that its rate-hiking battle against inflation is working, and maybe it will cool the pace of rates at the next two FOMC meetings this year. Fed fund futures now show a 55% probability that the Fed will hike rates by half a percent at its meeting that begins September 21st, and a 45% probability it will hike by another three quarters of a percent. That flip-flop last week after the inflation numbers were released. Meanwhile, the bond market continues to take a pessimistic view of the economic outlook, with the spread between the two-year and the 10-year yields continuing its inversion at negative 41 basis points. Translation, bond investors do not have high hopes for the near-term prospects for the economy. That tug-of-war has a lot of rally doubters calling the recent surge in stocks a sucker's rally. The short interest percentage of the average stock in the S&P 500 remains at highs we haven't seen since April of 2020. Short interest indicates how many shares of a company index or ETF are currently sold short, betting they'll decline and not yet covered. 
that's pretty pessimistic, but it could also be one of those contrarian indicators where extreme bearishness is a sign that the market could turn. And it has. Still, not everyone's convinced. Remember Michael Burry from The Big Short, Michael Lewis's incredible book about the great financial crisis that was later turned into a terrific movie directed by Adam McKay? Burry was played by Christian Bale. He's that quirky investor who discovered that the U.S. housing market in 2007 was a house of cards and would eventually tumble, bringing down the world's financial system with it. He was kind of right about that, so when he talks, I tend to listen. Burry pointed out in a tweet recently that in 2001, in the smoldering embers of the dot-com crash, the S&P 500 completed a 22% two-month rally, and the Nasdaq had a 43% rally. But that was a bear trap, and a big one. The S&P 500 would go on to fall another 42%, and the Nasdaq another 48% by the bottom in late 2002. Burry says he can't shake that silly pre-Enron, pre-9-11, pre-Worldcom feeling. Warnings like that are not stopping investors, though, from putting money back to work. According to B of A Research, investors were big buyers of financial and tech stocks last week, the biggest flows those sectors have seen in eight weeks. Individual investors have purchased an average of $1.35 billion a day of U.S. stocks and ETFs on a net basis so far this month. That's according to Vanda Research. That puts their purchases on pace for their highest monthly average since January, the very month when the recent bull market peaked. And meme stocks are back on the menu big time. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond and AMC both shot up again last week, and the stock Reddit boards were very busy. Those stocks are up 155% and 64% respectively just this month. The recent overall rally couldn't come at a better time for big investors like pension funds, those funds that hold the retirement nest eggs for tens of millions of teachers, firefighters, unions, and public servants. And they've just endured their worst quarter of investment performance since the onset of the COVID pandemic in 2020. Public pension assets posted a median return of negative 8.86% for the second quarter and a negative 7.9% for the year ended June 30th. That's according to Wilshire Trust. Those were a little bit better than the overall market, but still a rough tumble for pensioners. The top five largest pension funds in the U.S., in case you're curious, CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement System, the New York State Common Retirement Fund, the New York City Retirement Systems, and the Florida State Board of Administration. Investments in U.S. college endowments fell the most since the global financial crisis, just in time for back to school, losing a median 10.2% before fees for the 12 months through June. The largest funds, those with assets of more than $500 million, your Ivy Leaguers and your other big schools, those fared substantially better with a slight gain of just under 1%. Those big institutions are a little bit more promiscuous with their assets. They can invest in hedge funds, real estate, and private equity, along with stocks. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and the big box retailers will be in focus as they report quarterly results. We'll hear from Walmart and Home Depot on Tuesday, Lowe's, Target, and TGX on Wednesday, and Ross Stores and Kohl's on Thursday. How's spending holding up, and how much longer do they expect to have to pass on higher costs to us, the consumer? Are they still suffering from the bullwhip effect? Too much inventory of the things we don't need? We'll find out this week. We'll also get a fresh look at the U.S. housing market, with July building permits and housing starts out on Tuesday and existing home sales out on Thursday. We can probably count on seven straight months of a slowdown in sales and new construction as those 30-year fixed mortgage rates have really slowed down the housing sector. Well, what was the Fed thinking last month? We'll get a better idea of what went on behind the scenes at the last FOMC meeting in July when the Fed raised interest rates by three quarters of a point when they released the minutes from that policy meeting. Inflation, especially energy prices, has cooled considerably since then. So maybe the pressure is easing and the Fed will be more chill come September. 
It's easy for investors like us to overthink how we invest. There's so many options, so much information, and so many reasons for us to not take risks. And then there's our animal spirits telling us to run when we're scared and be greedy when we're confident. But what if we stripped out all of our primitive instincts back to the basics and asked ourselves some super fundamental questions? Why should we invest? Why would we want to invest in stocks? Why does the stock market go up? Not every year, but its track record over the past 150 years, it's pretty good. Brian Feroldi, a longtime financial journalist and market watcher, has written a terrific book that addresses some of these questions. It's called, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything you should have been taught about investing in school, but weren't. And Brian is our special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Caleb, for having me. Great to be here. I would normally ask why you wrote the book, but you wrote the book because nobody teaches these fundamentals. I mean, we do on Investopedia, but nobody's put it in a beautiful little book, kind of like the way you've done with yours. Was that the inspiration just to try to distill all of this down to the basics, the ABCs and one, two, threes of why this stock market of ours just has this magic way of going up year after year? Very, very much so. I discovered investing right after I graduated from college in 2004. And And as soon as I read my first book about money and personal finance, I just went on a binge reading series where I just devoured absolutely every book that I could possibly get. And I've read all of the the classic books on on investing about Warren Buffett, uh, by Peter Lynch, by by Jack Bogle, et cetera. They are phenomenal, just fantastic resources for investors. But the number one question that I had about investing was the title of my book. Why does the stock market go up? So many of those fantastic books all say you should save a portion of your income, you should invest with a long-term mindset, you should dollar cost average into the market, and the market continually goes up. And I was like, I I believe you. I I see the long-term history of the S&P 500, but what was never explained to me was why? What was the underlying force that caused the market to go up over time? So because I personally was seeking that information 20 years ago. Now that I know it, I just believe that there's a huge missing gap in the education of the average shareholder out there that they don't know why it goes up. So that that was the, the aim of the book was to fill in that missing piece of information. Yeah, we take it for granted. But if you do look at the track record, we're looking at somewhere between 9 and 11% going back all the way into the later part of the 19th century. The stock market has been through a lot. We know that. Lots of crashes, lots of bull markets, lots of bear markets. But there is this insurmountable climb that just keeps going up and to the right. And I don't think enough people stop and ask themselves that question. We just take it for granted. Well, put your money into the stock market and like magic, it goes up. But really, you and I have been around the block on this in our careers We see a lot of companies with no profits where the stock goes up over time. We saw that with meme stocks. You see it in internet stocks, probably all the way going back to tulip mania in the 16th century. You know, there's this notion that it might be profitable one day. It might have the best idea. So investors put a lot of faith into the future, even when they can't see it. Why do we do that? Well, I think that one of the most tricky things about investing is that in the short term, there's absolutely no correlation at all with what a stock does and what the business itself is doing. A company could be losing money, could be losing customers, could be losing market share, and its stock could still go up. In 2020, we saw basically every stock go straight up. And in fact, the riskier the stock, the faster it went up. Over the last year, we've seen the exact opposite, where some companies are still growing, they're increasing their margins, increasing their customers, increasing their profits, and their stocks have been going straight 
a down. This is why Benjamin Graham's wonderful quote is so appropriate. In the, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, the market is a weighing machine. Uh, the aim for my book and the aim for a lot of my education is to just make investors aware what the heck the weighing machine part of that equation means. If you look at the news or if you look at your phone, the only information that most investors, 99% of individual investors get about a stock is price. You see the stock price. That's the only information that you see. You actually have to do work to go and figure out what is this company's earnings? What direction are the company's earnings going? Same goes for the market in general. Everybody knows the price of the Dow. Everyone knows the price of the S&P 500. How many people know what the earnings of the Dow components are or the earnings of the S&P 500? And once you discover that, and once you look at the long-term trend of the earnings of the S&P 500, and the price of the S&P 500, it just becomes crystal clear that those two things are linked in the, in, in the long term. I have a strong feeling that very few individual investors actually realize that. Yeah, absolutely. And they're always looking at price. Why? Because the financial media, present company included, is making a big deal about price because that's the sports game aspect of it. That's like, you know, the pregame is the pre-market activity. The kickoff is the opening bell. You know, the halftime report is the halftime of the game. And then the closing bell, we deal with price. We're always talking about the Dow Jones average or the NASDAQ or this or that, or, or people are talking about the stock price of a company, but they're talking about it really kind of in a vacuum. And what we want to be thinking about is, what is this company's ability to grow over time? And will investors appreciate the rise in its earnings and its growth over time? And put more money into it. That's where the real money is made. Am I wrong? Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. What the what the price of a company does and what the business performance of the company does is a hundred percent linked in in the long term. Look at any of the most successful, largest companies that exist uh, today: Apple, United Health Group, Google, etc. Why are those stocks up many, many times in value since those companies first came public 10, 20, 30 years ago? In every case, the answer is the same because revenue and profits today are substantially higher than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That growth in profits has led to the increase in the value of the organization and shareholders have done very well by buying and holding those businesses. But if you look at all all of the biggest winners of the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in every single case, those shareholders of those great businesses were put through short-term periods of immense pain, immense pain, drawdowns of 50, 60, even 70% or more along the way to them delivering those huge returns. Let's talk about our emotions and our animal spirits. I brought them up at the top. They want us to do usually the wrong thing when it comes to investing because we have this survival instinct. We talked about it with Josh Brown last week. We have this survival instinct about being fearful. When things are, are scary, we make some bad decisions. We want to sell our portfolios. When we get really greedy, we think we can pick the right stocks all the time and keep buying and keep making money. But often those turn against us. Why does that happen? The reason that that happens is that every human was born naturally to be a terrible investor. All of our innate desires, all our innate thoughts are, are designed around self-preservation and designed around fear, right? We don't want to be uh, seen as different than the group. We take our cues from other people. The same exact principle applies to investing. If other people are excited about a stock and that stock's going up, it naturally draws us in. People want to buy stocks after they've gone up. Conversely, if other people are fearful about the economy and stocks are going down, our 
our natural inclination is to sell because we're taking our cues from other people. That is just human nature. And that's going to be the case essentially for as long as long as I'm uh, alive. If you want to do well as an investor, you have to learn to resist the urge to take your cues from other humans. Boy, is that really, really hard to do. When you see other people making money easily, like happening in, in 2020, and everybody's bullish, and everyone's excited, it feels like it's the safest time to invest because stocks were up so much. Conversely, right now, what have investors seen over the last 15 plus months. We've seen nothing but stocks going down, economic news getting bad, the headlines being terrible and scary, prices are declining. Nobody naturally wants to invest in that environment. It feels like it's the scariest time to do so, which ironically makes it a great time to invest. So you really have to understand that you were born to be a bad investor and it takes time and training and understanding market history to overcome those natural biases which is why your book is so valuable. Okay. We talk about the market in these general terms, but inside the mechanisms of it, and most folks don't care about this, but you and I watch this very closely. It's changed a lot in the last 20 years or so for a bunch of reasons, right? There's a lot more access to the stock market. There's a lot more information. There's a lot more institutions that are involved in the stock market, trading through algorithms and very sophisticated software programs, trading on metrics, trading on technical cues, and moving hundreds of millions of dollars around before we can even think about buying or selling a stock. That creates a lot of noise and a lot of activity and volatility and volume, which affects individual investors like me, you, and our listeners who are just trying to put together the right portfolio, do the right thing over the long term. Do these outside forces, and they're big, have a big impact on how we invest or how we should think about investing, or is that just, just part of the noise, Brian? Once you understand the advantages that Wall Street has over, over a new investor, it seems like it's impossible to make money in the market because to your point, algorithms out there can find the news quote unquote, interpret the news and trade based on the news faster than you can even read the headline of whatever news report that came out. So I, I kind of scoff to myself when I see other people trying to trade and out trade the news. It's, it's like playing poker against other people, except for everyone else can see your cards and you can't see their cards. I don't think that's a game that I could win. Now, thankfully, there is something about uh, investing where individual investors have a massive, massive advantage over professionals. And that one advantage is that we are managing our own money. We have no career risk. We don't have to meet performance guidelines. We don't have to explain our moves to anybody else. That allows individuals to truly invest with a long-term mindset. We can absorb huge amounts of short-term volatility. We can absorb losing to the S&P 500 over short-term periods. That's extremely hard to do if you are a professional investor and managing other people's money. For that reason, investors that manage their own money can adopt truly a long-term mindset. They can buy and hold great businesses or the index funds and not care about their short-term performance. That is the source of my long-term advantage over the market. I can't trade faster. I'm not smarter than the index, but I can I can be more patient than the index. That's the kind of thing I like to teach people to do because it's your only advantage. Yeah, you make a great point. It, we don't have to trade. We don't have to buy or we don't have to sell. We are not portfolio managers, most of us, whose job depends on us hitting a quarterly number or beating the benchmark. We just need to be, make smart moves to build our portfolios and our wealth over time. And the truth of the matter is, if you do it consistently, 
the market delivers. And that's through the magic of compounding. I call it the fairy dust that's sprinkled over the stock market and over investors who have this sort of discipline. But if you don't understand compounding, the rule of 72 and all these great things that that are so helpful in the process of wealth creation and the growth of the stock market in your portfolio over time, you're never going to get it. A lot of people come up to me, they probably come up to you, Brian, and they say, look at my portfolio. I have two shares of this, four of this, six of that. I bought them here and there. But you and I probably always say, no, no, you got to consolidate the positions. You have to dollar cost average and you want to own these stocks at a really low average price point over time. And their heads start to spin, but they're missing out on the key things, which is this compounding over time, the continued contribution to your portfolio over time with discipline. That's what makes you money, right? Very, very much so. And one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of investors make, new investors and even semi-seasoned investors, is they forget the number one rule of investing if you're going to buy individual stocks, which is know what you own and why you own it. Many people in my Twitter DMs or even in real life, they tell me, I bought X shares of ABC uh, company and I'm up X percent in X number of weeks or X number of of months. And uh, the thing that I want to say to them is, okay, what does this company do? Is its revenue up? Is its revenue down? What's its balance sheet look like? Who's its management team? What's its long-term potential? Does it have customer concentration? Asking the fundamental questions that they should be focused on. However, so many people naturally, when they get interested in the stock market, don't know any of that. Don't pay attention to any of that. Don't even know how to find that information. The only thing that they're looking at is the ticker and whether or not that ticker is up or down today. That is a less. That is exactly exactly what I did when I first started investing twenty years ago. I was going after the meme stocks of the day, which were penny stocks on Yahoo's discussion boards, predictably. And thankfully, I did terribly early on because I have no idea what I was doing and I was buying garbage. So it's natural that a lot of people that are new investors don't know what they're doing and they they, they buy what they see on Reddit or they buy uh, what other people are buying and they don't know anything about the fundamental of the business. You have a very important series of chapters here, but one that really caught my eye, this whole saving versus investing. I've been having this conversation with my kids and my nephews about what they should be doing in their late teens and their early 20s. What's your take? Because both matter, saving and investing in terms of growing your wealth, but you have to do both. Where do you fall in that into that camp? It's actually a spectrum. It's very natural for people that are interested in investing, myself included, to really try and hyper-optimize their portfolio to squeeze out an extra 5% of compounding. But if you put that into a compound calculator, an extra 5% over the market over a long period of time, the numbers are, are just magic. However, it's uh, one of the truths is if you are new to investing, you are going to realize so much more wealth for yourself by trying to optimize your income and your expenses as opposed to squeezing out that extra return. If you have $10,000 saved and you make an extra 1% or 2% per year, great. Well, that's $100 or $200 difference, right? But conversely, if you're at that stage and you can negotiate a raise, if you can upskill yourself, if you can save an extra five dollars or $10,000, that's going to have a much bigger impact on your net worth in the beginning. So in the beginning, when you're just starting, it's really important to fo- focus, focus on your income and your expenses and your savings rate. 
Over time, as your net worth continues to grow, gradually your investment portfolio starts to take over as the main driver uh, of wealth. So let's say you're 20 years in and you have a million dollar net worth. Well, suddenly a few extra points of, of gain can lead to 10, 20, 30, 50, $100,000 uh, worth of extra value. And that in many cases can be more than you could earn from your job. So it is a spectrum. Everybody is on this spectrum, but by and large, people that are just starting out will do much better for themselves if they focus on their income and their savings rate, not their investing returns. Great point. Well, your book is so full of good information and laid out very basically. You got to admire that being uh, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. The, the more fundamentally you can explain things to people, the better off they are. And people always appreciate that from us. And I definitely appreciate it from your book. Why does the stock market go up? Everything you should have been taught about investing in school, but weren't. Brian, you know we are a, a site built on our terms, our definitions, our explainers. I'm sure you have a favorite definition of your own or a term. What is it? Uh, well, th thank you for that. And I must say that I am a massive fan of Investopedia. I have used it so many times to look up definitions. So I just love your site. If I had to come up with one term that I like, I would probably say it's gross profit. So gross profit is on the income statement. It is revenue minus the cost of goods sold. And this is a metric that I have underestimated for the last 10 or 20 years. But more recently, I have come to learn that gross profit is one of the most important numbers that a company, uh, that any given company can optimize for. And it is a sign of just how much customers value a company's product. In fact, I think gross profit is more important uh, than, than, than revenue. So that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Are they able to to bring those sales down to the bottom line. That's a very key indicator. That shows you how efficiently they operate too. Great term. We love that one as well. And you're probably the first one, one of our uh, guests to choose gross profit. So good for you. Brian Feroldi, thanks so much for joining the Express. Folks, follow Brian at Brian Feroldi and also mindset.brianferoldi.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining the Express, Brian. Thanks very much for having me, Caleb. Great to be here. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week, we got to give it up to our pal Cassius Cuve for his timely suggestion. Y'all remember Cassius, our freestyle and finance MC? I'm just a boy from the Bay. What more can I say? Went to NFTLA and stayed for more than a day. Cassius has been very busy as usual, but he always takes time to hit me up on the social side. Cassius suggests reverse repo this week. And we love that term given what's about to go down as the Federal Reserve reduces its $8.5 trillion balance sheet. According to my favorite website, reverse repo or a reverse repurchasing agreement is a short-term agreement to purchase securities in order to sell them back at a slightly higher rate. Repos and reverse repos are used in short-term borrowing and lending, often overnight between banks. Central banks, like the Federal Reserve, use reverse repos to add money to the money supply via its open market operations. Well, as Cassius points out, as the Fed unwinds its balance sheet and starts selling U.S. Treasuries in September, things could get a lot riskier in the capital markets, especially if we're headed into a recession. You see, the Fed's reverse repurchase facility, RRP as it's known, that's its mechanism for buying government bonds, it's attracted a wide array of investors helping mop up excess liquidity in the financial system. Led by money market funds, volume at the reverse repo window has topped $2 trillion for 39 straight days. That is a lot. Since the Fed raised rates by three quarters of a percent in July, the Fed is paying a record reverse repo rate of 2.3%. 
Investors are effectively taking deposits away from banks and putting them into government money market funds, which invest mainly in treasuries and repos. These money funds, in turn, funnel cash into the Fed's overnight window, where other banks come to borrow every single day. Most investors, especially pure equity investors, don't even know this is going on, but it is the steam engine of the American capital markets. The worry, as the Fed gets ready to sell $95 billion in government bonds come September 1st, is that the outflow of deposits from banks into money market funds could reduce bank reserves at a rapid pace that could hinder lending activities to the financial markets and to the broader economy. That is not what you want to see if the economy is going into a prolonged downturn. Good suggestion, Cassius. We're going to be watching the reverse repo market a little bit more closely in the coming months, and you, my friend, will be rocking Investopedia's finest socks, hopefully in your next terrific video. We're going to let Benjamin Graham take us out this week. The so-called father of value investing who mentored hundreds of great investors, including Warren Buffett, taught at Columbia University's business school way back in the 1920s. In 1949, he authored a seminal book on value investing entitled The Intelligent Investor, which is a must-read for all express passengers. That's why we keep it in the dining cart. Here's Graham in a very rare and amazing piece of film shot at Columbia University's business school by Louisa Schneider and produced by Christine Cho. There's no date on this footage or notes about it on the internet, but in this clip, Graham is asked by the dean of the Columbia Business School why so many so-called Wall Street professionals can be so wrong so often. This question concerns the so-called Wall Street professional. Are Wall Street professionals usually more accurate in their near or long-term market trends, forecasts of stock market trends? If not, why not? Well, we've been following that uh, interesting question for a generation or more, and I must say frankly that our studies indicate that you have your choice between tossing coins and taking the consensus of expert opinion, <laughs> and the results are just about the same in each case. Your question as to why uh, they are not more dependable is a very good one and an interesting one. And my own explanation for that is this, that everybody in Wall Street is so smart see, that their brilliance offsets each other. <laughs> and that whatever they know is already reflected in the level of stock prices pretty much. And consequently, what happens in the future represents what they don't know. So smart, they cancel each other out. That's why we have to do our own research. Great piece of footage of Benjamin Graham there. We're going to link to it in the show notes. And if anyone can track down the date and the original source of that clip, we're going to send you an Investopedia Express hoodie. That's amazing. Special thanks to Brian Feroldi for climbing aboard the Express this week. Check out his terrific book as well. Let's see if we can make it five weeks in a row of gains this week, and maybe we'll see more breath thrusts and advancers leading decliners. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.